trust that you had a good week this week and uh, it's my privilege to preach this morning and to share God's word with you. I was just thinking that I, I found it quite stressful this week just with um, hearing all the news, the constant feedback, statistics, everything that's happening uh, and it can be really stressful to kind of try and process all those things all the time. So I really want to encourage you just to, um, for this next moment, to lay that all aside and to, to just let God speak to you through what I share and that you'll be encouraged um, as we look forward to Easter, which obviously is next week. Um, I was also thinking that, um, isn't it amazing that uh, traditionally churches are celebrating Lent uh, at this time? And... Um, we're kind of being forced into a kind of Lent, uh, not by choice, but by, by instruction from the government. And so instead of giving up ice cream or something, we've, we've been asked to give up spending time with each other and uh, relational time with our friends and relational time with our families. And I, I really would ask you to use the time wisely and to reflect on that as well as we go forward uh, for the next weeks that lie ahead. Um, it really is a time that we can use wisely. So let's do that. Um, so this morning I'm going to carry on in our series with, with Mark um, and uh, point a little bit towards the crucifixion as well in the, in the comments that I make this morning out of the portion that I'm going to read to you. So last week Ed wonderfully um, preached uh, about Jesus sending his disciples out um, and that they went out and ministered and uh, the powerful thing that happened through their lives as they were filled by the Holy Spirit. And then he challenged us and encouraged us to do the same, even in the midst of this lockdown, that we can be those that reach out to our friends, our family, our neighbours, and be those that live out the gospel. And so I want to pick up uh, from where he left off, and we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 6 um, in your Bibles, if you're following. It's verse 14, and we're going to read through to verse 29, and this is to do with John and the, the, the death of John the baptizer. So I'm going to read to the portion which says this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when King Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had been sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry 
But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What an incredible story. What a remarkable story. And um, as we think about it today and understand it together, uh, I think you're going to see that it helps us to prepare for the trial and condemnation and execution of Jesus that we will celebrate next week at Easter. It's something that points towards that event. And uh, last week, as I said, Ed shared wonderfully about the disciples being sent out, the apostles being sent out with uh, Jesus' blessing and uh, to do ministry. And this one person, we read the first verse here, there's one person who's really unhappy to hear about the reports about what Jesus and his, his, his apostles are doing. And it's this man, Herod Antipas. Um, and he was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And if you remember the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew 2, Herod the Great instructed the killing of infants under four years old um, because he was concerned about the prophecy that had come about the king being born as king of the Jews. And so that was Herod the Great. And when he died, um, his kingdom was divided between his three sons and his sister. Uh, and Herod Antipas, one of his sons, became ruler of Galilee from about 4 BC through to about AD 39. So during the reign of, uh, during the life of Jesus, Herod Antipas was reigning. Now, what do we know from Herod about this, from the story, this portion that we've read today? Well, first of all, we know that he really had sinned badly. He had, he had messed up. Um, there's this incredibly tangled, convoluted, incestuous thing in the marriage history of Herod's family. And it's so convoluted, it's really hard to figure out. But in short, Herod Antipas had a half-brother, Philip. Uh, remember I said Herod the Great had a number of marriages? Well, uh, this man, Philip, was the son born out of Herod the Great's second marriage to a woman called Mariam. So she had a number of sons, and one of them was Philip. And then the lady that we read about in the story, Herodias, um, Herod the Great was made, his first marriage was to a lady called Doris, and uh, one of his sons, Aristobulus, had a daughter called Herodias. And so here, this is why I say it's incredibly convoluted, incestuous, and quite, yeah, just terrible thoughts. Um, Philip, the half-brother of um, Herod, he marries Herodias, who was the, who's the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus. So at the same time, Herodias is both Philip's niece by birth and his sister-in-law by marriage. Um, and they have a child, and the child is called Salome, and she's the lady that dances in the story. So to make it even more convoluted and even more weird, Herod Antipas then persuades Herodias to leave his half-brother, Philip, and to come and marry him. And that's, what, that, that's exactly what happens. And so that's the context of the story. And not only is that um, against the Jewish law of Leviticus, remember these are Jewish leaders put in place by the Romans on, to rule on behalf of the Romans, 
Um, so Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 makes it quite clear that this kind of relationship in marriage is, 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 is against the, the law. It was also against the, the societal norms of the day. It was uh, against the, the norms of morality and decency in every way. So it's an extraordinary thing that is being described here. So Herod Antipas had really messed up. Secondly, Herod had heard God's voice speak to him through John. John the baptizer had bluntly and publicly spoken out against this marriage and told Herod that he, what he had done was completely wrong. We read that in verse 18. And that took great courage from John because obviously Herod Antipas had power over life and death as ruler of Galilee. And it seems that deep down Herod knew that John was right. And he, this, this conflicted behavior that we, we see within uh, Herod. It says in verse 17 that he both feared John, but at the same time, he respected John and he loved to hear him teach, even though he was puzzled by what he taught. So it says also that he knew that John was a good and sincere man. And so there is this inner conflict in Herod that we see described here. On the other hand, Herodias, his wife, is furiously resentful of John. And we read that in verse 19. And she is plotting to see John killed as, uh, and to get him out of the picture, to take revenge and to get him out of the picture. And so she gets her chance at the birthday bash. There's this party thrown for Herod for his birthday. All the officials and uh, dignitaries from the royal court are there. And um, she, uh, Herodias sends in her daughter Salome to dance. And she does so in a most inappropriate way. As a royal prince, um, she shouldn't have been doing this. Uh, these kind of dances were reserved for, for prostitutes. And um, so for a, a princess of royal blood to dance like this was completely inappropriate. Um, and the fact that Salome did that is a grim commentary on her character. And it's also a grim com commentary on her mother's character who encouraged her to do it. And thirdly, it's a grim commentary on the character of Herod, and it says in the story that he, he was so pleased with what she had done that he makes this, this um, impetuous promise to give up to even half of his kingdom, and she can ask whatever she wants. And obviously, that sets things up for Herodias to gain revenge over John, as the story says. So, the third thing I'd like to point out is that we see this inner conflict lived out, this confusion lived out in Herod's life. And we see what an odd mixture of a man he really was. And I guess that led me to think of my own life. Um, that whenever we are convicted of sin, we can often become a contradiction. We can, can often live in a conflicted way. Our emotions begin to rage within us and um, we know that something's wrong and yet we haven't put it right and so there's this inner conflict that, that happens in our lives. And we see that played out in Herod's life. So he, he has this conflicted behavior. He, he enjoys hearing John. He knows he's a righteous man. He wants to protect him for, from Herodias so he puts him in jail. And uh, at the same time, he doesn't do anything about his own sin. And so he could have gone to Philip, he could have gone to John, he could have gone to Herodias at any time and simply told them and said, look, I've messed up, I've done wrong, let's put this right. But he doesn't. He never repents. He hardens his heart and he refuses to swallow his pride and put things right with the people that he needs to. 
And so he lives as a tormented and conflicted person. Fourthly, his pride that attrapped him initially leads him to further sin. And this is what I mean. It, it seems quite obvious from the story that you can see one sin leads, uh, needs to be covered up by another sin. And so he had already sinned by taking his brother's wife. Uh, John comes with this word strongly to say what he has done is wrong. And so he commits another sin. He imprisons John to try and cover up uh, the effect of what, what John has said. And so it takes one sin to try and cover over another sin. And that's the problem for all of us if we start living a life of ongoing sin. One sin leads to another and that has to be covered up. And so another sin is put in place to cover the first one. And uh, I was just thinking of the most obvious example that I can see scripturally of that. And we all know the story of David and Bathsheba so well. But David sins with Bathsheba. And then to cover up that sin, he commits murder and kills Uriah. So it's the same thing, the same process. One thing covers up the other and it gets more complex, more, inter more um, uh, entangled in, as, as it goes forward. And so in this story here, we do see it gets worse for Herod as well. And he's trying to limit the effect of what he's done by putting John in jail. But he doesn't want to punish him anymore. But he's pushed into doing so by his new wife, Herodias. And so he makes this reckless, impulsive, probably drunken promise um, to Salome after she's danced. And he says, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. And he is trapped by his pride. And it's the same pride that would not let him confess his sin, will not let him break his word. And so, in reality, he rather would commit murder, which he does, than look foolish in front of his guests, and look foolish in front of the royal um, household. And it's the same that's true for us in our lives. Pride can lead us to do terrible and strange things if we will not humble ourselves and just say, sorry. It gets more complicated, more convoluted, and we can get ourselves into terrible places just because we will not say sorry. So I want to encourage you in your own life, keep a soft heart so that you can be someone that learns to say sorry. The fifth thing I want to say in this, out of the story is that in all of this, isn't it amazing that Herod is, is hearing about Jesus? And I find that incredible. In all of this, this whole story, God is giving Herod another opportunity to hear his voice. Uh, it's like God's word doesn't want to let Herod get, aw get, get away. He's killed John, but now he hears reports of God's words being powerfully um, lived out and demonstrated through the life of Jesus and his apostles. And this really, to me, shows God's mercy in an incredible way. It's a great mercy that God enables us to hear his word continually. Uh, it would be the wrath of God. It would be the anger of God if he took away his word so that we could no longer hear it anymore. But he doesn't even do that here for Herod. Herod um, has a chance to actually send for Jesus. And it's interesting, he says, it says at the beginning of this, this portion that he actually thinks it's John the Baptist whom he beheaded come back to life. He actually, he actually says that. It actually says that. He has a chance to send for Jesus. He has a chance to ask for mercy. Um, we, we know from the portion he believed in John, John's priest, preaching. He obviously believed in the supernatural and that God could raise someone from the dead. But instead, again, Antipas does nothing. He hears God's voice 
through John, he hears God's voice through Jesus and he does nothing. He hardens his heart. And why I said at the beginning that this story points us to Easter is because actually in the end, Herod Antipas does get to meet Jesus. And we know when Jesus is, um, appears before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate sends him off. Um, he doesn't want to take responsibility. He sends him off to Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, and says, no, this man's in your due restriction. You deal with him. And so we, we read in Luke 23, in verse 7, um, this, there's a little cameo of what happens when Jesus appears before Herod Antipas on trial. And it says this, speaking of Pilate first, it says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, obviously speaking of Jesus. And when he learned this, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And it, look at, listen to these verses, they're so interesting. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at great length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, then they arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became, friend, became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Here's the really sad thing. When Herod, who had longed to meet Jesus and wanted to, to see him do amazing things, when he eventually meets Jesus, Jesus has nothing to say to him. And so, because Jesus has nothing say, to say to him, he ends up rejecting him as well. Herod had a number of opportunities. God spoke to him through John. God spoke to him through the preaching of Jesus. And now a third time when he actually meets Jesus face to face, Jesus has nothing to say. It was too late. He had resisted God's voice a number of times and now it was too late. Jesus had nothing to say to him. And I want to encourage you with that because the book of Hebrews, great, wonderful book, one of the key things it says in the book of Hebrews is today, if you hear God's voice speaking to you, do not harden your heart. Respond. Listen to what the voice of God is saying and take the opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you now. So I want to encourage you, whoever you might be listening to this message this morning and know that there's an area of your life that God is speaking to you, respond. Do it today. You never know. God might not speak to you about that thing again, just as he did with Herod. There was a point in Herod's life where it was too late. He had hardened his heart so much. And that's why the scripture encourages us in Hebrews not to harden your heart our hearts, that whenever we hear God speak, we respond immediately and obey immediately and repent or, or respond in whatever way is appropriate to what God is saying. So finally then, my, my, the last thing I'd like to just say about this portion is that really Mark is showing us at a much greater depth what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. John had been faithful. He was a faithful man all of his life. He had prepared the way. That's what he said his ministry was, to prepare for uh, the way for someone who was far greater than him. 
He'd done that faithfully, he'd done that well over the course of his whole life. And ultimately his faithfulness had brought about his own death. And so I think Mark is trying to show us that, uh, he's trying to encourage us that to be a disciple of Jesus is not just about following Jesus on the basis of his teaching or his miracles or following along with the, the rest of the crowd that are following Jesus. Rather, as we get into the second half of Mark now after Easter, you're going to see that Mark really makes clear what following Jesus means. It means following him to the cross. It means taking up our own cross and doing what God has required, requires of us. It, it means going beyond the cross even into the life of what God has after that. And so I, I really want to finish with this to say it really helps us understand what faith looks like in dark times. And I really think that Mark is sending a, a message to us as those that are reading this gospel. And for me, as a Westerner, as a white Westerner, um, I, I, I look back on my life and I see that there's been a tendency in Western Christianity to lay too much stress on the miraculous, on the exciting, on the prosperous, on the triumphal nature of what it means to be a Christian and to, to live that out. And that's a very attractive thing is when, you, when you're starting out as a Christian, that uh, Jesus wants you to live a victorious life and uh, there's, there's the, the, God's got blessings for you and all of these things are true. But I found this, it's not enough to sustain you over the whole of your life through the difficult and challenging things that come to all of us. And right now our nation is experiencing a difficult and challenging thing in this being locked away so that we can, as a nation, combat the coronavirus. And so Mark is helping us to put right that one-sided view of what it means to be a Christian. John was a true disciple. He was a faithful disciple. And his life looked nothing like a triumphalistic version of Christianity. Neither did, John, uh, uh, neither did Jesus show that in his own life of obedient sonship. Uh, with all of his power, with all of his obvious wisdom and teaching, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards his own death. And John the baptizer, his death uh, also shows us that um, shallow triumphalism is not going to help us in, through the entire length of our Christian lives. It also shows that um, if we are faithful witnesses to Jesus, it doesn't always mean there's going to be affirmation and praise for us. There's a price to pay. And sometimes, just like um, John, there was a price that was the ultimate one for him. It was his life. So then, as we think about Easter that's coming up um, and us becoming disciples of Jesus, what then does becoming a disciple of Jesus have to offer us in terms of our lives? Well, I would conclude and just say this, that it offers us an opportunity to, to live according to the truth, to walk with Jesus, and to give ourselves in love and service to the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that reward that we get from doing that is not necessarily worldly success, but it's the knowledge, it's the reality, it's the knowing deep in our, our, our knower. I always say you know and you'll know it. Well, deep in your, your knower, you know that you're faithfully serving God's purpose in the world. Whatever comes, 
your way. And that's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And all of us have a great opportunity right now in our context, it's the way things are right now in our society, to live out faithfully being disciples, loving others, giving our time, giving our resources, sharing our food, being a good neighbor, loving those that need uh, a, 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 um, an expression of love, being faithful in phoning people, being faithful in, in uh, using Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is to be, to be Jesus to someone else right now. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to do that, to faithfully be disciples that show something of God's kingdom to those that are around us, our friends, our family, and our community. I hope that encourages you this morning. Uh, I hope that you feel built up. I hope that you feel encouraged uh, and that you can have courage this, this week to live your life courageously. Uh, even though you might, can't get out and do what you normally were doing, that you'll be courageous in, your, in, the, in, in reaching out to others, to, to taking the initiative to pick up the phone or whatever it is, so that you can be a blessing to someone else who needs some, uh, the love of Christ this week. Amen. Well, God bless you. God keep you. And God make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a courageous week. See you next time.